you're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Before we get started here, let me just share a little disclaimer. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the medical uses of cannabis. Now, all of the information I present to you in this podcast in general is for education and entertainment purposes only, and should definitely not be considered medical advice. Please never make decisions about your health based on anything you hear me or any other podcast host talk about. I'm simply sharing information that I've collected from talking with professionals with relevant experience or from research studies that are available out there that have been published, but I'm not a doctor, and you should always get your medical advice from a licensed healthcare professional. Now with that out of the way, let's move on. Think about a Mozart symphony that's so incredibly beautiful. And you have a lead violin, and then you have all these other instruments, right? Mm -hmm. And all those other instruments basically support that lead violin. Now, what's happened is under the illusion, and I will call it an illusion, that we can control the dose, we've isolated the lead violin Mm -hmm. and just use that in our pharmacology. Um, And the rationalization for this is actually, if you really go back and look at the science, the rationalization for doing this is actually not very strong scientifically. Here in the state of Oregon, medical cannabis has been available since 1998 for registered patients with a doctor's recommendation. There are a variety of conditions that can qualify someone to join Oregon's medical marijuana program, such as cancer, glaucoma, PTSD, or HIV, but the most common condition being treated with medical cannabis by far is pain. At the time of this recording in 2019, 88% of the 27,000 qualifying patients in Oregon's medical marijuana program reported severe pain as a condition that they intended to treat with cannabis. The remaining conditions ranked from most common to least common were spasms, PTSD, nausea, cancer, neurological disease, seizures, glaucoma, wasting syndrome, and HIV or AIDS. Across other states with medical marijuana, chronic pain is consistently the most cited reason for treatment. And it's easy to see why. The CDC estimates that chronic pain may affect as much as 40% of the U.S. adult population. Clearly, people are trying to treat a wide variety of serious conditions with cannabis. And if cannabis is an effective therapy for just some or even all of these conditions, it could change the health and well-being for a massive amount of people currently suffering every day. But some people are pretty skeptical about the medical use of cannabis and think the claims around cannabis are well overhyped. So what do we really know about cannabis? How is cannabis a medicine? Hey everybody, I'm Jason Wilson and you're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. In this episode, we're going to be exploring the whole idea of cannabis as a medicine. And to guide our curious quest, I wanted to explore several primary questions. One, how has cannabis been used as a medicine in the past, traditionally? Two, how are cannabis and cannabis-derived drugs being used as medicine today? And three, how are medical claims derived? How do we actually determine that something is a medicine? So let's get started. 
In 2015, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a review acknowledging a list of therapeutic applications of cannabis, while also expressing skepticism over others. Then the National Academy of Sciences released a lengthy 400-plus page review also identifying clear therapeutic applications of cannabis and its constituents. The National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine published the results yesterday. Panel looked at medical and recreational use and examined more than 10,000 studies. Well, in terms of, of treatment, there's pretty solid evidence that can be helpful in alleviating uh, chronic pain in adults, nausea from chemotherapy, and then spasticity or muscle spasm in people with multiple sclerosis. They also looked at a whole bunch of other things where there wasn't quite adequate research. They said we need more research for things like epilepsy, you know, PTSD, uh, even anxiety. Were you surprised that there are some clear health benefits from marijuana? Not at all. I have to point out here that when we talk about the medical use of cannabis, we aren't just talking about smoking cannabis. And I know that when a lot of people hear the idea of the medical use of cannabis, they think about people smoking. But there are a lot of ways to consume cannabis, and each consumption method affects the body differently. Sure, cannabis can be smoked or vaporized, but it can also be eaten in the form of cannabis-infused foods, or taken sublingually by taking drops of a cannabis tincture under the tongue. Cannabis can also be administered on the skin topically, or less commonly, cannabis can also even be taken as a suppository. Now, anything consumed orally by the mouth will take longer to take effect because it has to pass through the digestive system and it undergoes a process called first-pass metabolism before the cannabinoids are passed into the bloodstream. During this metabolic process, cannabinoids are chemically altered. For instance, when THC is ingested orally, nearly half of that THC is metabolized to a compound called 11-OH-THC, which is considered nearly four times as strong as THC. This is why the experience of eating cannabis products can sometimes be really unique and sometimes a lot more powerful than consuming cannabis by other means. However, when cannabis is smoked or vaped or when someone uses a sublingual product or suppositories, cannabinoids actually bypass the liver and pass straight into the blood. And this leads to a much faster onset and avoids the chemical alteration that can happen during metabolism. So it seems among the scientific and medical communities, there's no doubt that in some contexts, cannabis can be a medicine. But to what extent? And for what conditions? At what dosages? And in what form? That's where much of the debate currently resides. According to the United States government, at the time of this recording in 2019, cannabis and its cannabinoid constituents are classified as Schedule I drugs, a classification reserved for drugs that are presumed to have no medical value and a high propensity for abuse. Other drugs that are classified as Schedule I drugs include things like heroin and bath salts. And to put this into even better perspective, Drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine, which are Schedule II drugs, are less controlled than cannabis. Despite the U.S. government's determination that cannabis should be a Schedule I drug, and as such has no medical value, the government actually held a patent on the antioxidant and neuroprotective properties of cannabinoids up until this year. And to many, this patent represents some deep hypocrisy. 
regardless of the legal status of cannabis, there are many people across the U.S. that have jumped on the cannabis bandwagon, touting benefits so profound and diverse that it can't help but sound like a pitch for the next snake oil. Browsing through Instagram or Facebook, it's so easy to get barraged by meme after meme about the different promises of cannabis and the ills of Big Pharma. So what's the truth here? Well, to start, let's explore the ways cannabis has been used as a medicine throughout history. Then we can look at some of the more modern cannabis research and see how some of these traditional uses hold up against modern science. Cannabis has been used by humans for a long, long, long time. We're talking thousands of years. I mean, really, we're talking like 5,000 years. Half of a decamillennium if decamillennium is even a phrase. If not, it is now. Well, you know, cannabis is, of course, shrouded in all this, you know, prohibition and mm -hmm. a lot of political, you know, struggle. and A lot of different energies surrounding lot, yeah, it. Yeah, it, it, it's gotten into a darker place, even like just sort of the information we have about it. That's Dr. Jason Miller, a medicinal plant and Chinese medicine expert that's been noticing that more and more of his patients are starting to talk about cannabis. You know, I like to start always when I'm looking at what is the benefit of a plant or what are the weaknesses of it or the mm -hmm. potential, you know, dangers of it. I want to see what did the, what is the record of that plant look like yeah. across traditional cultures? Again, it's not like, you know, people talk about, oh, it's woo-woo, it's folk medicine. Whether you call it that or not, mm -hmm. those people were carrying oral traditions and written traditions about medicines to help their people that they cared a lot about. Mm -hmm. They didn't have time to sit around and go to the movies. No, they were they were living, mm -hmm. and it was life was a struggle for a lot of people. And medicine was really important. So there's a lot of heart in it. There's a lot of intention in it, and there's a lot of empiricism. So I always go there first. And what I've done with cannabis, you know, when my kind of digging into what is cannabis as a medicine, I've had to cut through that same kind of shrouding and sort of darkness of like, how, what, what really is it when looking back at what are the records from Chinese medicine and the use of cannabis? And I've looked at deeply into it and tried to find what are the threads, yeah. you know, because most of the time in, you know, in school, in medical school with Chinese medicine and the doctors from China stuff, it's just kind of, we don't talk about it. You yeah. Know? You, of course, the hemp seed, you know, everybody knows that that's, you know, nutritional. You know, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's generally, there's a, a couple of great formulas that use madza ren, and ma is the word in Chinese for for China, for <laughs> hemp or cannabis, right? For marijuana, um, and so madza zhe is a seed, and so you got madza oh, madza is a the, the seed of the cannabis plant, right? And so that seed has been used really successfully for. Um, moistening up the bowels and helping with constipation. And you combine it with other herbs that have other, you know, peristaltic mm -hmm. actions or, you know, pull some fluids into the large intestine, you right. know, and then like, you know, mirabolitum, things like that. And then those will all work to kind of create this bowel. But, but beyond that, you start digging into what was actually cannabis used for as a mm -hmm. medicine. And was it, was it cannabis in the sense of, you know, THC rich, or was mm -hmm. it cannabis in the sense of hemp? Was it ragweed? Was it it's really hard to determine that from the records that we do have, but there is some consistency across the writings I've examined um, in using cannabis for conditions that involve, you know, something in Chinese medicine called wind, which I've talked about with you before, which is like the idea that there's an instability in the body. Mm -hmm. So there's a homeostatic stabilizing kind of effect mm -hmm. from cannabis um, where, you know, it's, it's, it's instability in the mood. There's um, things like 
tics and twitches and tremors and dyskinesias and things of that nature that cannabis was really good for that it's been recorded that people would use it for that and again it's hard to understand were they using cbd at that time right. or was it a strain that was blended and we don't really know the records are hard to follow um but clearly it was used for problems of the mind you know people having anxiety mm-hmm. schizophrenia you know people that had you know mental instabilities it would really help to bring back some balance to them and um you know one of the things that i, f- I saw that people used was they made a um a cannabis wine mm-hmm. and it was made you know so they would take like a it was it was like more like a cannabis wine extraction i guess but they would take their rice or sorghum wine that they would mm-hmm. make right they'd ferment those yeah. grain you know the grain and create you know an ethanol rich solution and of course we know that you know ethanol is a great way to extract cannabinoids right mm-hmm. you know and so they would they would take the seeds with the coating on the seed you know the uh, what, what do you call that the it's it's not the calyx, but it's actually there's a a coating around the seed as it you know sits on the plant, and that coating is covered in little hairs, right, little trichomes. Right. So it's got a lot of cannabinoid on it. But so they would put the seeds with those little trichomes into their solution, and they'd extract it, and they'd give it as this cannabis wine, and they'd give it to patients for different conditions. So it's clearly been used that way, and it has a you know it's very safe medicine. Um, but I think that part of the problem is just that we have a hard time understanding um, with this plant the differences in its phenotypes, you know, in, in, in the mm-hmm. different types right. or cultivars of cannabis, which are so, which is one of the things that makes the plant really unique. You know, mm-hmm. you can get a very different physiological effect from right. one strain, right, than another. And that's, you know, and, and there, to some degree, some plants have that, but very few and to that degree. And I think it's one of the things that makes cannabis unique and fascinating to yeah. me um, is that it's just that, you know, God, there's so much. And we talk about what does cannabis do? I'm like, well, man, yeah, which Which part of cannabis? Which cannabis are you talking about? Yeah, how are you using it? Yeah. In Chapter 2 of the book, The Handbook of Cannabis, Dr. Ethan Rousseau, a neurologist and cannabinoid researcher that's been studying cannabis for well over 25 years, summarizes some of the ways in which cannabis was used therapeutically throughout the last several millennia. Here's an extremely condensed version of what he presented. Oral traditions of cannabis use for things like appetite stimulation and fighting the effects of old age day back to nearly 3,000 years BCE. That's 5,000 years ago. In 1500 BCE, the Atharva Veda indicates that Indians were using cannabis for anxiety relief. Cannabis is suspected to even be a component of the holy anointing oil of the Hebrews as far back as 750 BCE. The juice of the leaves was noted to be a remedy for earaches in the first century, and in the second century, Chinese records indicate that cannabis was used in wine as an anesthetic. In the early 10th century, Persian records indicate it was even used to stimulate hair growth. In 1542, it was noted that cannabis roots could be boiled and used to treat gout and burns. And throughout the 16th century, records indicate that cannabis was used for things like sore muscles, stiff joints, burns, wounds, even jaundice, colic, and tumors. In 1839, a researcher named O'Shaughnessy studied Indian use of cannabis and performed experiments in dogs and then later people to determine if cannabis was a suitable treatment for things like tetanus, rabies, epilepsy, and even rheumatoid disease. Now, O'Shaughnessy is a particularly interesting figure in the history of medical cannabis, and we're going to be learning a lot more about his work in future episodes. Shortly after O'Shaughnessy published his findings, cannabis began showing up in the European and United States pharmacopoeias. As records become more easily obtainable, we can find records throughout the 18th and 19th centuries of 
of cannabis being used to treat things like migraines, pain, spasticity, anxiety, depression, and insomnia. Cannabis was even featured in the U.S. Pharmacopoeia as a medicine until the 12th edition, when it was released in 1942, well after the marijuana prohibition had begun in 1937. You can still look up old issues of the USP and look for entries for extractum cannabis or tinctura cannabis. It may also be listed as extract of hemp or tincture of hemp. And upon the initial publication of cannabis in the USP in 1851, the ninth edition of the U.S. Dispensatory had this to say about the medical use of cannabis. Quote, It's been found to cause sleep, to allay spasm, to compose nervous disquietude, and to relieve pain. The complaints in which it has been specially recommended are neuralgia, gout, rheumatism, tetanus, hydrophobia, epidemic cholera, convulsions, chorea, mental depression, delirium tremens, insanity, and uterine hemorrhage. After cannabis prohibition began, cannabis became unavailable as a medicine, and research into the plant progressively slowed down into the late 1950s. Modern medical research into cannabis really started to take off again in the 1960s when THC was isolated and synthesized. A little-known fact, but CBD was actually isolated and characterized approximately 20 years prior to when THC was isolated. But because CBD doesn't elicit an intoxicating effect, it went largely ignored at first. More recently, the FDA just also approved a CBD-based drug called Epidiolex for the treatment of drug-resistant epilepsy in children. As THC research progressed throughout the 1960s and the 1970s, research confirmed that THC could reduce nausea and vomiting associated with cancer chemotherapy, that THC had the same analgesic effect as codeine, and that THC performed as well as the anti-asthma drug salbutamol, aka albuterol or venilin, as a bronchodilator. Now, the 1980s ushered in renewed interest in CBD, as well as continued research in THC. In 1981, CBD was identified as an anticonvulsant. A year later, it would be found that CBD could help relieve the anxiety brought on by THC. In 1985, the unique flavonoid canflavin A was discovered, and this really broke cannabis research away from the cannabinoid chemical class to encompass other types of plant compounds. It was also in 1985 that the pharmaceutical drug Marinol was approved by the FDA for chemotherapy-related nausea. In 1985, uh, synthetic THC as Marinol was approved by the FDA. That's Ethan Rousseau, and he's had a little bit of experience with cannabinoid pharmaceuticals. The thought uh, among certain people at the time was this would obviate the need for cannabis treatment right. uh, for medical conditions. Instead, what we got was a drug that is very poorly tolerated <laughs> um, and uh, gained no traction uh, in the marketplace. THC by itself is a very disorienting drug. People tend to be dysphoric, unhappy, rather than euphoric. Uh, even people who are accustomed to cannabis find THC in pure form a very difficult drug to tolerate. Mm -hmm. and very few people remain on it for any length of time. And 
when people have had the opportunity to compare, almost invariably they prefer herbal forms of cannabis. In 1988, scientists finally discovered a chemical receptor in the body that seemed to be responsible for most of THC's effects, the cannabinoid type 1 receptor, or as we call it now, the CB1 receptor. This marks the beginning of piecing together a fascinating puzzle about a physiological system that had since been ignored, the endocannabinoid system, which wouldn't really be formally named for another 10 years. But we'll get into that story in another episode. In 1993, CBD's anti-anxiety effects that had been previously noted in the 1980s were again confirmed. And in 1997, it was found that THC could help reduce agitation in patients with dementia. In 2003, clinical trials of the cannabis-based pharmaceutical Sativex began, investigating whether it could be an effective treatment for multiple sclerosis symptoms. In 2005, Sativex would go on to be approved in Canada for the treatment of MS-related pain. Over the years, Sativex would later be approved for other types of pain, such as neuropathic pain and cancer pain. Eventually, Sativex would be approved in the UK and Spain for spasticity in MS patients. In 2010, it would be discovered that Sativex can also treat nausea related to chemotherapy treatments. One problem with our current approach to medicine, at least in the United States, might be that it tends to favor isolated or limited ingredient formulations over things like botanical extracts that would contain a high diversity of compounds. People want to know what herbal cannabis and cannabis extracts may or may not treat, not what THC or CBD alone may treat. In fact, time and time again, research is indicating that cannabis extracts, with a broader diversity of chemicals from the cannabis plant, actually tend to perform better than isolated cannabinoids like THC or CBD. A lot more research is needed to understand the nuanced differences in the therapeutic activity of isolated cannabinoids versus herbal cannabis or cannabis extract, but there certainly seems to be major differences. One of the big issues right now is trying to sort out whether uh, people should have single compounds like single cannabinoids versus whole plant extracts, and I'm clearly in the latter camp yeah. uh, for the synergy, the boosting effect that uh, these provide over and above the kinds of effects that we can get with single compounds. We have now a lot of evidence, both laboratory and clinical, that uh, much better results accrue when we're dealing with complex mixtures from mm -hmm. cannabis extracts as opposed to pure compounds. A recent illustration was uh, a, uh, an article from Spain, Blasco Benitez et al., uh, in which they were looking effects, at effects on cancer, both in cell culture and in animals, uh, comparing pure THC, with, which worked to some extent uh, in treating the cancers. Uh, but in comparison to a cannabis extract, there was much, much greater activity uh, with very salient statistically significant differences. Another good example um, was there was a paper by Pamplona in 2018 uh, that compared pure CBD uh, as would be in epidiolex to the results that people got 
with uh, CBD predominant mm-hmm. cannabis extracts. What they found was equal efficacy, but with the uh, cannabis extracts, the doses were about an, on average 22% of what was wow. required with pure CBD. So instead of 1500 milligrams a day, <laughs> perhaps 300 milligrams uh, would be enough uh, of the corresponding extract. Um, so this, this can uh, represent a substantial savings in cost. Um, additionally, with the high doses of pure CBD, there is the possibility of drug-drug interaction, yeah. particularly sedation with some of the drugs that are used in epilepsy treatment. Over and over, healthcare professionals I spoke with commented on the superior efficacy of broader-spectrum cannabis products over isolated cannabinoids. We've, we've seen that. And it was interesting when we first started out, um, we thought half of our patients didn't want THC in their products. So we gave them a CO2 extracted, uh, just CBD, and the others did want a little THC. This is Dr. James Taylor, a pain physician working in North Carolina. Ever since hemp became federally legal in the United States, he's been working with his patients to understand how hemp extracts and CBD particularly might be a tool to help treat chronic pain. And what we found is, our, once again, in the waiting room, the people who were trying the CBD products, the ones that had a little bit of THC and had a full spectrum were having profound results. Those that were on the isolate weren't having such profound results. So it was in the waiting room that the patients were talking. So when they came back to the office visit, they said, hey, I I don't want to take the CBD I'm taking. I want to take the one they're taking. (laughs) And so it was the patients that were coming back telling us that this full spectrum was superior over an isolate. So I'm assuming, uh, you know, these large doses that folks need with the the epidemiologs and the CBD isolates is because uh, it's just inferior. It's an inferior product uh, and you can take much less if you're taking a full spectrum product. This difference in therapeutic outcome between isolated compounds from cannabis and the use of herbal cannabis or broad-spectrum or full-spectrum cannabis extracts is attributed to something often called the entourage effect. I think the best uh, depiction of this idea of the entourage effect or what we have called for probably longer uh, synergy in in medicinal plants is a symphonic effect. That's Kevin Spellman, a molecular biologist and phytochemist that's dedicated his entire professional career to trying to understand why plants affect the body the way they do. And lately, he's had his eyes on cannabis. So think about, think about, um, think about a Mozart symphony that's so incredibly beautiful. And you have a lead violin, and then you have all these other instruments, Mm -hmm. right? And all those other instruments basically support that lead violin. Now, What's happened in pharmacology is under the illusion, and I will call it an illusion, that we can control the dose, we've isolated the lead violin Mm -hmm. and just use that in our pharmacology. Um, And the rationalization for this is actually, if you really go back and look at the science, the rationalization for doing this is actually not very strong scientifically. In the 30s, in the uh, early 20th century, 20s, you had the eclectic physicians doing studies on um, whole plant extracts, and then in some cases they actually used uh, an isolated constituent. And this is the Lloyd brothers, the eclectic 
physicians were supported by some brilliant pharmacists called the Lloyd Brothers. And the Lloyd Brothers were really good at extracting. In fact, some of their instrumentation, their chemical uh, instruments are still used today. They invented them to do extractions, and we still use them today in, in, chemi in chemistry labs. So they had this opportunity to look at whole plant extracts versus uh, isolated constituents. And they found in many cases, not always, but they found in many cases that the whole plant extracts were... Um, had a better outcome. Mm. Now, and I think that's really what we have to look at because in an isolated model, for example, a cell culture and an animal model, you actually might get a better outcome with an isolated constituent right? because you're right. pounding. Essentially, it's pharmacological dosing versus physiological dosing, right? right? So in physiological dosing being that idea of using just enough to get the effect you're looking for. Minimum effective dose. E yeah. e exactly. And what we end up seeing with this in, in healthcare is that everybody's too busy to do that. The patient's too busy to, to pay attention because they're going to have to pay attention to where they get the effect. The doctor's too uh, busy to actually put an inquiry into where was that dose that worked for you. Mm -hmm. And everybody wants instant relief. So, so it's fallen by the wayside. But how, were we to pursue that further, I think we'd have a much more effective model. The other thing that happens here when we look at isolates versus um, whole plant extracts is the, the adverse event profile goes up. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge issue. And for example, in my, in my own body, you know, if I take, if I take Ginkgo 24-6, the, the standardized stuff, um, I actually end up uh, with a huge diuretic effect. Mm -hmm. I'm running to the bathroom every 20 minutes. Uh, if I just use ginkgo leaf that's thrown in a capsule, I don't have that effect. Yeah, I noticed I noticed the blood flow effect in terms of uh, cognitive function uh, with both of them, but I'd rather use the whole leaf ground up. So we have that lead violin that's that's working, and what we found in reductionist chemistry now is that oh, there's more than one lead violin. Turns out that the oboe takes a lead in this <laughs> section as well, yeah. right? And oh, it turns out that the cello also ends up having a lead in the. So we have found multiple active constituents. In the case of echinacea, it's been hypothesized that at least three, at least four now compounds are considered the actives. When they came across the CB2 binding of alkyl amides, what happened is everybody thought, oh, we finally done it. We have found the active in echinacea. Well, not, <laughs> not so fast because yeah. we've got the caffeic acid derivatives, which, by the way, are anti, directly antiviral, but incredible antioxidants and potentially uh, block histamine release. Um, by the way, if you're looking at anaphylactic reactions mm -hmm. and, you're, and you're stuck in a pinch. Um, we've also got the, uh, the polysaccharides, the rabinoglactans in echinacea that are also super active and uh, directly stimulate immune function. So that becomes very interesting because here in one plant, you've got something that's a bit of a immuno uh, dampening effect, the alkalamides, and you've also got something that's a direct immune stimulator, mm -hmm. that's a galactines, And then you've got something that tends to modulate immune function, that's a caffeic acid derivatives. Oh, and by the way, it's antiviral. So we can't simplify plants to one constituent. And that's the mistake that's being, being made over and over and over. It started in the 70s with ginseng. People were looking at ginseng and saying, oh, what's the active constituent? And they came upon the ginsenosides or the saponins mm -hmm. of, the, of the plant. And so what 
what happened from this ridiculous research in the 70s is there was a time when people would look at plants and if they didn't have alkaloids or they didn't have saponins, <laughs> they were thrown out. No, yeah. they're not active. Yeah. It's all fantasy. No, these tribes using this are not getting any effect. We know best. Right. right. We've studied it. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we could. I could talk about this all day. I've written a couple of chapters on it in, in books and uh, published a couple of paper, papers on synergy. But the idea that there's only one active compound is really naive. There is this bias in science against medicinal plants as if it's not real. And we need to stop and realize that about half of all of our drugs have been based on medicinal plants and about 25% yeah. of all of our pharmacopoeia is still directly isolated from medicinal plants. Um, if you look at cancer drugs, something like 70% of them in the last 10 years have come from uh, natural products in some sort of way. So when physicians and healthcare providers look at me as, uh, you know, with a disapproving look that I'm into mm -hmm. medicinal yeah. plants, they don't understand their own pharmacopoeia that they're writing from daily. So far, we've looked at the ways in which cannabis has been used as a medicine in the past, and some ways in which cannabis and cannabinoid drugs are being used as medicine today. Join us in part two of this series where we pick up on our quest to understand cannabis as a medicine by examining the ways in which medical claims are derived. How do we determine that something's a medicine? And what results are clinicians seeing in their patients that are using cannabis? Until next time, I'm your host, Jason Wilson. Stay curious and take it easy. Special thanks to our guests that were so gracious in spending time with me for interviews that helped construct not just this episode, but other episodes throughout the season. So check out the citations for this episode, and there are plenty. You can check out the show notes by visiting cacpodcast.com. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. If you like what we're doing here and want to support the show, please consider supporting us by liking and sharing this episode with your friends and family. You can also choose to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash naturallearningenterprises, where you can get access to the full-length guest interviews, behind-the-scenes content, and a lot more. You can also connect with Curious About Cannabis on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We must work untiringly so that our children are obliged to learn the truth, because it is only through knowledge that we can safely protect